the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there. But if not, you know, leave us a nice review on iTunes. Either way, we'd be really happy to have that. Today, we're very happy to bring you all James Wakefield. James teaches at the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University. He's published two books on the work of Giovanni Gentile, Giovanni Gentile in the State of Contemporary Constructivism, a study of actual idealist moral theory and thought thinking, the philosophy of Giovanni Gentile. Today, we'll be focusing our discussion on an essay, The God Emperor and the Tyrant, the Political Theology of Frank Herbert's Dune Saga from the recently published collection, Dune and Philosophy, Minds, Monads, and Wadib. So... Thanks so much for joining us, uh, James. I'm a Dune super fan, so this is uh, I'm very excited about this discussion. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So we generally like to start our talks or you know ask our guests for an origin story, and that could be you know take that as broadly as you want. Um, but if there's an anecdote or maybe an incident, a moment, an event, a thinker, something that just grabbed you and gave you that sort of passion for the field of philosophy. If you have something like that that you'd be willing to share, we'd absolutely love to hear that. And then follow-up question to that would be the sort of Dune introduction intro story. And um, what made you sort of, what was the, I guess the, what put the idea in your head to write that essay? There are a couple of different elements there, maybe a few different elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose my, my philosophical origin story probably begins with uh, Nietzsche as a I imagine it's for, for a lot of people, right? That's, Excellent. That's, that that, that must seems be to the be most... a common refrain, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was almost certainly one of the aphorisms that would have been, you know, the epigraph to some book or a video game. Right, or, or some, even you know, before a chapter uh, in Dune, oh, right? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? And I just wanted to look this up. And there's something uh, really enticing, I think, about some of Nietzsche's aphorisms, especially when you're, I don't know, I'd have been, what, 16, 17? And I'd have gone away and got a copy of... Uh, Beyond Good and Evil from a yep. you know a bookshop in Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, I'd have enjoyed the aphorisms, and then got into the continuous prose, and then discovered that it's, it gets quite dense quite quickly. I came back to Nietzsche much later, and in between, I went to university. I returned to the UK, and uh, I studied politics at university, and discovered a couple of years into that degree that my real interest, my real strengths, were in political philosophy. And it was around that time that I. Uh, I was particularly interested in Hegel. This will sort of lead us back around to to Dune, I should say. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Hegel is what really caught my attention at that time. And I was interested in this idea that Hegel had somehow anticipated 
20th century totalitarianism in some way. We get this uh, in the work of people like Karl Popper and in you know v- various others besides. And so I wrote something when I was an undergraduate about Hegel and, well, it was originally going to be Hegel and totalitarianism. And in the way of these things, it was narrowed down to Hegel and Giovanni Gentile, who was the Italian philosopher who, I suppose, first theorized the idea of totalitarianism. He wasn't the first person to use the word, but he was one of the first people to use the word. And a couple of years after that, I had the opportunity to do a PhD here in in Cardiff, in South Wales, with the great Bruce Haddock, who is is retired now, but was a a social and political philosophy specialist with a a real interest in Italian intellectual history. And I, I wrote my PhD about Gentile's ethics, which might seem like a contradiction in terms, considering that he's also usually remembered as the as the philosopher of fascism. Mm, right. Um, you know, you don't think of him as the. He's not the obvious person to ask questions about ethics. Very Hegelian, though, right? Sure. Yeah. In <laughs> in in his own in his own peculiar way, I guess a, Italian neo idealism in the in the first half of the twentieth century has its own has its own quite special flavor. So I came through a, quite a long route. To Gentile, and I've ended up being a, a Gentile specialist. You know, I've translated some of his work. I wrote a, a book about him, and uh, I edited another, which you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've worked on some of his some of his students and some of his associates over the years. So it's a, it's a strange sort of specialism to have. I should say it's worth flagging this up earlier on that uh, I mean, obviously, I'm not a fascist, and I don't. Think <laughs> should be. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just address the elephant in the room there. <laughs> it's just, yeah, that's how I came to my sort of academic specialism. However, this doesn't explain the whole June thing. So somebody wrote to me, an old friend of mine who who uh, you know I shared a house with back when we were we were doing our I guess postgraduate degrees. Uh, wrote to me to say that that. An advertisement had been put up. They were looking for submissions or, or abstracts to be submitted for what became this, this book. Nice. And he thought, because he remembered <clears> that I had read, <throat> I had been reading Dune again uh, when we were when we were PhD, well, you know, when I was yeah, when I was a PhD student. He thought that I might be interested in writing something about the philosophy of fascism in connection with Dune. I was unaware. I mean, this may just be that it suggests that I you know, don't spend enough time on the internet, but uh, I was unaware that Dune had kind of a following among, you know. It has followed kind of it? Old, yeah. Fascists, right. fascists enjoyed it? Uh, okay. Yeah, they, okay. Yeah, that had kind of passed me by. I didn't know that either, but it kind of makes sense, yeah. right? If you, 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 you can see it, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can absolutely see it. I yeah. mean, we can get into that, but. Mm-hmm. Sure. But this chapter was not quite about that. I was writing about the connection between Dune and totalitarianism and the idea of political religions and political theology, which uh, is connected to, but not quite the same as, if you like, the philosophy of fascism. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what I was talking about. And in some ways, what you get presented very clearly, vividly in Dune is the idea of, uh, I guess, of a political leader who is who is something more than human. And this is a way that totalitarian thinking will often sort of characterize governments, leaders, and all the rest. So one of the really hard things in Gentile's work is, uh, well, well, an interesting thing in Gentile's work is that he was a well-established philosopher before the Mussolini government came to power. And he, he had just been, or he had written a lot about the philosophy of education, about educational reform in Italy. So he, he was uh, headhunted effectively by the, the first Mussolini government. He wasn't yet a fascist. Interesting. And yes, he, he's got this whole body of work 
from before he was a fascist. But this makes it all the more puzzling, all the more bewildering <laughs> when reading his work is that he's such a fan of Benito Mussolini. He just doesn't seem to see that this particular barrel-chested dictator might have been something of a charlatan. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> or, or right. Have been a you know a, a flawed leader or might might not have always made the right judgments and um, he just seems to have been just totally enamored with this figure or at least unwilling to unwilling to change direction is uh, part of that was... cult of personality or just yeah, that, that seems to have been it okay. that seems so, to have been it we call that psychic disavowal mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean he knows very well and yet you know, uh, yeah. Well, wait, that would be, uh, that would, wait, or is it foreclosure or disavowal? I guess disavowal Disav would be, I disavowal know. Disavowal is the, yeah, is the, you know, I know that. I know very well this leader is flawed, but I will still treat him as though he is not. I know he's castrated, and yet I'm right. going to pretend he's exactly. the primordial father, right? Yeah. That you would be disavowal. Uh, yeah, sorry. He's got to have noticed that occasionally his employer may have seemed to be something of a hypocrite, or it mm -hmm. just seemed to have been, well, seemed to have been a problem in some way. He remained convinced that Mussolini was a genius. I mean, that's the, the word he, you know, he says, says it as simply as that. Right. In places. Gentile was, uh, was, uh, was assassinated in 1944, so he didn't see the end of Mussolini quite. But he did stay with the fascists even after the fall of fascism, if you like. He, he went up to the Salo Republic after the Allies invaded. So he, he, really never, he really never conceded that he had maybe hitched his wagon to the wrong organization that is fascinating and i hadn't heard of of gentile but the way you mobilize him in your essay i thought was was nice and was helpful particularly and i think this maybe makes sense in retrospect with your sort of uh you know your insight about how he he might not have he might have willingly blinded himself to the hypocrisy or just the falling short of that ideal philosopher king, let's say, that he might have seen in, in Mussolini, the way that, if I remember correctly in the essay, you kind of put it that you need to get behind this strong leader, like a, whether it be a, a Paul or a Leto or a Mussolini, in order to, in order for there to be kind of a, a culture that has bonds that kind of go beyond individual differences, et cetera, right? That there's some sort yeah. of culturally binding aspect that maybe he, maybe that was part of the ideal too, is thinking yeah. that this was necessary. Maybe it's a way that sort of bridges the material and the, the, the material and the transcendental is like religion is one of the few things that kind of is able to effectively bridge that gap or paper over that gap in a manner that is at least able to sustain some level of cohesion. I think the way I described it in the essay, that this I think this is the the, the section you you may be uh, alluding to here is where I was talking about the idea that you know the boss may not always be right, but he's always the boss. And it's quite a, right. a folksy kind of a folksy way of putting that, I guess. And yeah, I think that that is something that runs through a number of these sort of totalitarian, well, if we can call them sort of totalitarian thinkers. I mean, I think mm -hmm. there are problems with, with characterizing them in that way. But you see this in the works of people like Carl Schmitt with his kind of decisionism. I mean, the whole flavor of Schmitt's work is it's quite different from Gentile's, but they converge on some themes, some ideas. And in Gentile's idea that we all need, Gentile thought, to get behind the state. You know, we are all part of the state. We are nothing without the state. We might sort of agree with him on this up to a point. We, we at least we can sort of see what he's getting at here. There's this idea that that somehow there are these institutions, these ideas that bind us together. But the problem, well, it seems to me, 
anyway, that the problem comes in when he then says, well, and of course the state is represented or it's manifest in the person of Benito Mussolini. <laughs> it's, it's just, you could right. sort of say, well, I was, I was with you up to a point there, Giovanni, <laughs> but I think, you've, I think you've taken a big step without explaining why. Um, and it's always going to look like a, it's always going to be a problem, we might say, because yes, I, I suppose Gentile's theory is one that might be appealing if we can leave out of the equation all of those people who already exist. If we were to just say, if we imagine a world in which everyone was united by one sort of spirit or one sort of identity, had one sort of clear idea of what, what they sort of belonged to, they were all pulling in the same direction. Well, that might sound like a great place to be, but the problem we have is that we start with people in all kinds of different positions, with all kinds of different beliefs, and telling any one of those people that, well, whatever you think at the moment, you're going to have to change your beliefs to conform with those that have been dictated for, well, literally dictated for you by some dictator in Rome. Right. That's going to look crazy. It just looks totally implausible that that's something that they could simply change by wanting to. So Gentile seems, I think, not to really take seriously the, the if you like, the, the real world political implications of what he is saying about what it is to live in a political society with other people. He doesn't really seem too bothered about the fact that as much as it might be nice for, for everyone to be pulling in the same direction in the end, in order to get them to do that, you are going to have to oppress them. And that's going to be rough. And people are, are, are not going to like that. People are, are going to have a, a terrible time. And his tendency to try to, uh, to brush this off and say, well, if the state is carrying out violence against its own citizens, then it, it does it with a sort of moral authority because it's the state. That seems to be reasoning backwards. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, he, he just seems to have that backwards. He, he seems to be sort of saying, well, you have the authority because people will ultimately agree with, you know, well, the state has authority because people identify themselves with the state. But the reason that the, the state needs to, let's say, claim that authority is so that it can set about forcing people to comply with its, its wishes, with its, with its will. It can continue its what it's the it's the two violences. It's the state has its founding violence, but then it has the violence that perpetuates itself. And there's a way in which we rationalize that kind of violence and don't want to look back at the founding violence, which would undermine it, you know, in a certain sense. But you know, we 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 go along with the self-perpetuating violence and call it something else. I'm thinking in my head, and and you guys would do better here, but I'm thinking in my head about when you brought in the golden path, would there be a sense in which Gentile could endorse this type of talk about a golden path that we would see violence, you know, in a certain sense, but then there would be this higher goal that would justify it, the ends, and thereby render it, you know, morally beneficial for the whole or something. I mean, is there some sort of do you want to say anything about that? That would he have endorsed a kind of golden path with Mussolini as a kind of Leto god emperor type thing, or is that going too far? Is that is that too Schmidtian? You can definitely draw a clear parallel between those things. Uh, one of the things that that you see again and again in Gentile is this is a rejection of the idea of transcendence, the idea that there is that there is a single fixed answer that's out there for us to discover. He has this idea that the state, if you like, the state with a capital S, lo stato again, embodied by Benito Mussolini. If it makes a decision, if it wills something, then that has a sort of automatic moral authority by virtue of it being the will of the state. 
and it sort of creates its own reality. So he doesn't think that we should sit down and sort of work out what kind of perhaps constitution we want to have or what kind of politics we should be committed to forever or indefinitely at least. Rather, he thinks that somebody always needs to be prepared to make a decision to change as the facts change, to to will differently as, again, as the world changes. Right. Uh, so you can understand the, the golden path in, in those kinds of terms, I think. It's the idea that, well, we might say that uh, Paul and Leto II have some kind of privileged insight into the future that just no one else possesses. Other people may get a glimpse of this, but they can really make the decisions that matter. And provided that they are guiding humanity down this path, then they are, they're sort of morally authorized to do so. Again, because of their privileged insight. And, and in Gentile's work, the privileged insight seems to consist largely in the fact that someone is, in Gentile's theory, the state seems to have that privileged insight purely because it is the state. You might think that there's a, an element of magical thinking in there. You know, that there's, a little um, circular reasoning, yeah, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Because if you had an organization that was, let's say, plumping to be the state, let's say you had another party mm-hmm. that was, uh, was competing with the, the National Fascist Party to become the state or to guide the state, and it didn't make it, you know, let's say that the, the fascists were able to sort of stamp out the opposition. It might seem in the moment, it might seem that someone who was supporting that party might say, well, you know, we have our, we have our sort of counter-narrative. We have our, our story about, about our authority or about the, the, the tale that we're telling, the destination that we're headed toward. And by reference to that, we think that we can sort of justify our own, our own decisions, our own will. It just seems to be working backwards from a, a point at which you've already decided who has authority. And trying to justify that to somebody who doesn't agree with you already is always going to be tough. And it's a way of just sort of dismissing opposition, I suspect, by saying that you really ought to want what the state wants you to want. And if you don't want that, then you're not wanting correctly. This is why I kind of brought up Schmidt, as you did later in the essay, is, is a lot of this feels like it would be at home in some of the political theology, whereby the state is kind of an incarnate it's sort of mirroring a kingdom of heaven or Mussolini has a perhaps some sort of deified essence. You know, all of this could be we think about the I, I mentioned the golden path. And you, again, you guys know more about this, but you think about the Bene Gesserits priming the worlds for however many millennia to accept a kind of uh, Christ like figure. I can't help but think for let's just call him a traditional quote unquote, traditional, a, a sort of right wing political theorist like Gentile that, you know, the history of the Catholic Church has a lot of grounding in this type of theory. Is that true? Am I sort of in the ballpark with that? That's fair. G- Gentile's relation to the Catholic Church is not easy to describe, Okay, let's say, with confidence. He was often accused of being, you know, I say accused, Yes, I think that's probably fair. He was often accused by his Catholic contemporaries of being an atheist or a Catholic in name only. Interesting. And he insisted right through to the end of his life that this wasn't true. He said, of course, I'm a Catholic. I've always been a Catholic. He didn't think that there is a a problem with also believing that, with also being in favor of totalitarian fascism. His works were certainly on uh, on the index of forbidden books, but then whose weren't? I guess he's in good company there. Right. But you can certainly see a parallel between this way of thinking about the state. And this, again, I think is probably made more explicit in, in Schmidt's work, 
this way of thinking about the state and religious language, certainly. The idea that the, that the state or that a legitimate government is something kind of privileged, that it's able to determine what is right and wrong in some really meaningful way. That does have a, a let's say, a religious flavor to it. And I suspect that that is also true in, in the way that we would ordinarily talk about politics. And I don't just mean, you know, if we were, you know, if we were at a seminary and we were talking about politics, <laughs> not just the way that we would talk about politics in explicitly, you know, religious, in an explicitly sort of religious way or register. You know, I mentioned this at some point in the essay, the, the thought that, you know, when people you might think of maybe American presidents and they'll talk about the office of the president and they'll, they'll talk about the United States, the United States government and its tradition and its sort of hallowed institutions and all the rest. There is at least a flavor, let's say. There's a taste of religion in that. And I don't think that's, that's not just a feature of American politics by any means. It's quite ordinary in the way that we, we talk about political institutions. I think about the, the reverence in uh, the founding fathers, right? Yeah. In what they would have wanted and all of this stuff. It sounds a lot like rhetoric you hear about what you know what god wills or god wants for us to do etc that kind of that kind of talk is always a little suspicious right uh is the quote-unquote founding fathers and uh and that and that giving you know and, and you hear this as you said it's not just in explicitly political discussions or explicitly religious discussions it's just it gives a religious flavor specifically to you know the jurists and uh and court judges we've had where, you know, whereby they can justify their their reasoning for making law by whether it be, you know, constitutional originalism, et cetera. There is a kind of I don't want to say scapegoating, but there is a kind of a way in which you prop yourself up on this pedestal of what the founding fathers would have wanted, which is just it always seems, again, kind of like you were describing, it seems like you're bootstrapping yourself or you're, you're kind of, you're giving yourself your goal at the start and working back towards it. You know, you think of the way that you might say the people have decided on something and it's as though the people is one thing. Right. And in that moment, you're treating the people as though it's one thing with one voice and is, is making a single decision. Whereas, of course, the reality is that, you know, a bunch of different people came to different conclusions for different reasons. And the idea that the people has decided on anything is always something of an approximation of, of the truth. It's right. a, a sort of leaning into, into metaphorical language for a moment, just in order to make sense of a much messier reality in which politics you know, finds a home. I'm thinking about that language. Even Nietzsche has parts where he will juxtapose something like the transcendent authority of the state, which he finds to be obviously violent and self-justifying, et cetera, versus what he calls peoples or something like this, which has some sort of imminent grace and authority to it. Obviously, with Nietzsche, there's always a nuance that I'm leaving out here, but you can kind of see, as you're saying, this opposition can be, um, you can you can put some a little bit of transcendence back into that as well. Coop, you're sort of highlighting this passage. Did you want to delve into this? I know you shared it with me oh. last night. I'm curious. I was going to bring up the slatteries at some point just for the I wanted to not only give James some background onto why I think the sort of Freud and Jung, the psychoanalytic aspects of that sort of infiltrate the whole series. I think, you know, that's something I just kind of wanted to highlight for that purpose. But I, I don't know if it really I like this path we're on this path we're on Okay, we, um, to, regarding well, the golden path, because what I think is so yes. interesting, there's so much. I mean, it's there's like infinite number of ways we can 
dive into this, but I'm thinking of the kind of crude alpha bun that Leto does that is kind of, I think, throws this Gentile's maybe even, well, I don't know if it actually throws it into question or not, but the way that he's able to basically, he gets his adversaries to do what he wants by opposing them. That's ultimately what I'm trying to say through like a like a t- kind of crude dialectic. And to exemplify that throughout the stories would be, or the book God Emperor is the way that, for example, he uses his tactic against the, would it be the Ixians? I think the Ixians mm-hmm. are the ones that develop the no ships. So basically space travel that does not rely upon the spice, which can only be mined on Arrakis, right? So this is one thing to break this economic monopoly and this sort of propping up by this one particular substance, right? It's a vital threat, right? It's an obvious choke point for civilization, etc. I don't think we have to delve too much into that aspect of it, but I think that is so very interesting just to kind of see how that works. Like obviously, again, the dialectic is a lot more complex than this sort of very simple negation, but I think it at least shows that Herbert is like really wrestling with that's at the level that I think Herbert works is at these at the level of institution and like he's very mm-hmm. aware of the unconscious, etc. Trying to think of another example of besides the no ships that am I, am I understanding that by Leto sort of hoarding the spice which cuts out interstellar travel to a certain extent it gives rise to the conditions the necessity of finding other means of traveling is that kind of what you're saying yes 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 precisely precisely another aspect of it that i think would maybe even go to nietzsche we could talk about this too is one of the primary things about the golden path or goals of the golden path is to break this notion of the transcendent leader of the sovereign exception of the the primal father sort of you know what I mean? The the non-castrated Which Leto becomes to embody. Right. I mean, he literally okay. becomes the phallus, you know, a phallic object. He is the Leviathan. He literally right. is the Leviathan, right. both <laughs> physically and metaphorically, in that right. he is constituted with the uh, subjectivities of the entire entirety of human history, if you want to extrapolate that far. So I don't know. There's a lot to mind to mind <laughs> there, but I thought perhaps that at least that kind of uh crude dialectic might be something that we could maybe bridge the gap on <laughs> and i know that james you you have a passage one of your sections in the essay is pointing out nicely how leto makes what you call kind of a if i could phrase it this way and i'm paraphrasing a kind of extra political decision to kind of put himself on the path to to die to give up what could be a perpetual leadership, right? That there's a way in which he he makes this decision, if you if we can call it, to step down as leader, which you point out that that seemingly is contradictory within a purely political realm, but has other justifications. I think you kind of put it this way. I, I, again, I'm paraphrasing badly, but... In some ways, it's one of the great things about God Emperor of June is that much of it is given over to conversations that I guess Frank Herbert is sort of having with himself. At times, people seem to be approaching Leto and sort of saying, well, you know, Leto, what are you all about? What do you think about this? And he'll say, well, I'll tell you for a page and a half, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, this is one of the really interesting sections in, in that book is when he says, you know, I want people, again, I'm paraphrasing now, but you know, I want people just to remember me as, as being a tyrant. I'm going to go away and th- they've become perhaps, uh, they've become uh, over-reliant on him. Herbert talks about this himself in, you know, if you like, outside the outside the novels themselves. 
in a few places. And I guess he may have changed his mind about some of the details about you know what, what he understood Dune to be all about. But he does say explicitly uh, sometimes that he understands it to be a story about power. And when you when people start following one leader, and that you are always going to have, on the one hand, leaders trying to sort of oppress creativity and imagination and all the rest. And yet this will spring up by itself. It will always be able to spring up by itself. That's at least one of the the themes of the of the series. And I guess Leto at that point in the book is is speaking in the very much in the voice of Frank Herbert. He said the same way, you know, that this is something that can't, this can't go on. This can't go right. on indefinitely. And even if, even if you have this leader who has this superhuman, privileged view of the future, who in principle knows all, who has all of the answers, but is the only person who has all of the answers, then you're still losing something worthwhile if you are preventing people from being able to think for themselves or you're trying right. to prevent people from being able to think for themselves. But it may be that that you know more about this than I do. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what Herbert's explicit political positions were. Does he go into, when he's not writing about Dune, did he talk much about the politics of his own day? I think he was a Republican. I'm pretty sure he yeah. was a Republican yeah. and wrote for maybe Republican newspapers at some point. But one thinks that like I feel like he falls into a certain California liberalism, maybe, okay. especially of this era, you know, of the seventies. You know what I mean? I don't know that he would be. He was raised Catholic. Okay. I don't know that he would necessarily be. I don't know. It's a different era, you know, of Republicans, right? I think right. there's a difference between a Nix a Nixon Republican, even and like a sort of Trump. You know, I right. don't know oh, that. sure. Yeah. There's a certain populism. I think that he may not have sort of agreed with. I think that's maybe the the skepticism on the part of Herbert that prevents him from maybe that's why I say that. I think, you know, is that's the very thing he I think he tries to work through, just like you said, um, James. Mm -hmm. you know, I was going to bring up the scattering is another vital aspect of the golden path that I think goes towards this. It's by again, it's like this Hegelian negation of I will restrict you so that you explode out. I'm going to so bury these this tyranny into the unconscious of man that this never happens again so i think there that's interesting per, there perhaps is this move much like the death of god right like taylor you and i have discussed mm. how it takes a while for that to move through the unconscious to the full so reach consciousness yeah so part of leto's reign you know it's like 3500 years is to i think perhaps a gesture towards that nietzschean or like you know, kind of Freudian point of, you know, this is something that has to work. It has to get sort of pass through the entire sort of body without organs or something like that, or the whole social. My one thing was the quote you brought up, James, just to put this in context with what sure. you brought up, Coop, about he wants to be remembered as a tyrant. Is this also in the sense in which he's trying to articulate how he doesn't necessarily want the need, the vacuum of power that he leaves, he doesn't necessarily want for them to try to replace him with some sort of another, a leader of the third or something, right? I mean, this gets into him not being able to reproduce, et cetera, but also him in his dying, what? In his dying, he reproduces the conditions of Arrakis that were around 3,500 years ago, right? It, at the time he dies, it's, it's more of a paradise, but then he kind of, instantiates some yeah. of the the desert light conditions again right, right? yeah here's the thing where Vi I'm, herbert sorry. is like a, a hardcore vitalist and he, i mean i mm. perhaps or i don't know i feel like that sort of 
Leto in particular, like he gets very aroused at the thought of the wild genes mixing. Like it's a little bit, that's where this kind of fascist, weird, vitalist impulse kind of permeates the work with its quasi eugenics. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Herbert has made a choice to talk about race consciousness there, hasn't he? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a, I don't mean to say that he's got an explicit agenda there with quite. Right. But uh, he is definitely making a choice to use that language. I mean, he, th- there is a conscious echo or self-conscious echo of, you know, certain 20th century political leaders that we, uh, you know, we could name. The way I understand it, and again, I'm sort of an amateur here, but it seems kind of, uh, I mean, Coop brought it up and I'm just going to say it, it seems to echo some Herbert Spencer stuff where it's it's mm-hmm. kind of this idea of the Iraqians have become soft Yes, which, uh, yeah, uh, exactly. For 3,500 years with the utopia of whatever, of having a wetlands or something. And, you know, he's going to reproduce the conditions under which they, yes. quote Nietzsche, they, they became hard, if you will. Right. They they had to, they need those desperate conditions. Precisely. That forged the Fremen in the first place. Exactly. To come back. Yes. And so it is, it does have echoes of kind of what, whether it be eugenics or social conditioning, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting. I, I guess that that's, I liked what you said, Coop, about how the oppression, and I think this goes well with the way your essay runs, James, this, this notion of the oppression has, has an ulterior end that isn't immediately perceivable for anyone but these sort of godlike figures the sovereign that, exception that, yeah yeah the sovereign exception uh so this notion of of sort of ingraining an aversion to a superego instead of the superego kind of being formed in order to perpetuate a kind of love of a fascist leader or a god emperor it's it's the opposite right that there's yes. a kind of aversion it's almost in a i don't know what you would call it it's like warding off the yeah it, that, it, that super egoic tendency. I'm it, not sure. It's kind of like you, uh, whenever you get caught smoking and your parents make you smoke the whole carton. That's kind of that, that's the logic <laughs> of the golden path. It's like, all right, you guys, you yeah, you wanted you wanted you wanted fascism here. You wanted a, you wanted <laughs> right. the you wanted the one. I'm gonna give you the one. Yeah, and then you're no. gonna. If you want fascism, you have to smoke the whole packet. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to. The only way out is through. Okay, buddy. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna sit. I'm gonna sit here and watch you smoke every last one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, I suppose you might think of it as maybe as a kind of a trivial example, but uh, you, know, you think of the old life of Brian problem, where they, uh, uh-huh. they they would sort of say, "Well, you know, you must think for yourselves," and they say, "Yes, Brian, we we, we must all think for ourselves in unison." Yes. This is the kind of the problem that you can you can have, I guess, is that if if you have the opportunity, you know, if, if you imagine that anyone had the opportunity to to shape society in any way that they want it. But one problem that they're going to have is that the society that they're presumably going to end up with is one in which somebody has made a decision to shape that society deliberately. And that, you know, right. that makes a difference. So it's a really interesting part of the of the series, I think. That moment yeah. in God Emperor of June where he says, you know, I must um, I must be remembered just as a tyrant rather than as being this this really special creature. Right. That's you know unlike anything else that we've seen seen before. Taylor, yeah, I, he, oh, go ahead, Coop. James brought up the racial consciousness, and I wanted to mention because, like, I know that you're you've mentioned many, many times this element uh, within Anti Oedipus. Um, yeah, like the unconscious knows what it knows only knows people, races. I forget the exact 
Delirium reveals how the unconscious is populated by races, history, ethnicities, right? That's kind of what their point, and and it's specifically with respect to Schreber, right. uh, his delirium, and how Freud whitewashes away all the racial elements, whether it be like the two gods and his delirium, this whole idea of being sort of elected Aryan. Freud doesn't want to deal with that kind right. of stuff because it's it's way too... He's way too involved in, let's just say, the politics of the time in, in reading that. So, yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which, what were you going to talk about? What, well, like, I think that, okay. su supremacy or something? Yeah, or? The, well, I think, I mean, I think Herbert sort of orientalizes the Fremen and their sort of wild, you know what I mean? Right, right. That sort of fetish, the, yeah, it's Orientalism, magical, mystical people that have this wild genetic ability that's going to sort of pers you know persist within that he wants to persist within humanity that is going to mm -hmm. generate creativity and prevent this sort of ossified anti-paradise that leto creates during his reign but there's so much to you know to go back to like the negation thing and even oedipus is one of the interesting things is leto i'm not leto but uh duncan the duncan idaho goal is because Ultimately, his goal, like Leto, part of the golden path is for Leto to engender his own death, engender the revolution via Siona and Duncan, Idaho. But Right. Yeah. I mean, I like what you bring out about, about the Orientalism, and uh, I hadn't thought about that, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think maybe we could try to wrap this back around to... Uh, to James, some of the stuff you've, you've written about, because I was also thinking just to, to take your, your ideas forward, Coop, about how, and what you said earlier, James, how in the Republic, and just very basically, Plato, you know, even if the philosophers are in charge, so to speak, they're the guardians of the, the ideal state, there's a sense in which, even if truth may be an ideal, there's a sense in which the people have to be at many steps along the way misled and tricked into believing that there is, let's just say, like their way of pairing together families, their way of pairing together spouses, you know, as though there is chance behind the lottery, whereas behind the scenes, the patriarchs are rigging the game, right? And so like, there's always, there's necessarily a kind of injustice, if you will, or even inequality, you brought up the the myth of the metals, right? That the common people are made of bronze and iron, whereas the patriarchs are gold and silver, blah, blah, blah. I mean, obviously myths help to perpetuate this, but the people can't really know about the myths. They can't really know about the injustice or the, they have to think that there's a kind of randomness or chance involved. But on the other hand, it's like the market. Yeah. I mean, they have to believe it's kind of, let's just say, yeah, that's the invisible hand of the the market, the invisible hand of the Republic is the patriarchs rigging the lottery of the of the marriages in order to to breed, if you will, the best citizens that they think. I mean, are that goes to the whole the Benny city. Gesserit and Leto's breeding exactly. program to tie it back to the text. But I just wanted to inject that. Yeah, exactly. Or, or you might think of, um, I suppose, Henry Sidgwick and the idea of uh, government house utilitarianism, and that if you want to, you know, he thought that the the best way to to govern a, a country or a state would be to use utilitarian ethics. But he thought that a big problem with that was that if people found out that you were making decisions on the basis of utilitarian ethics, then they would become a lot less happy. So mm. you need to govern according to utilitarian ethics while presenting, or at least while uh, giving the impression that you're governing 
in some other way. Interesting. Uh, how yeah. much does that sound like the United States? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it makes, but it makes sense. I mean, so that's that's something that I think that that's a great way of putting it, James. It's that's kind of a, a modern way of glossing how Plato is discussing a lot of these decisions being made higher up need to be presented as though they are a part of natural law or as though they are, right. you know, yeah, capitalism as, is human nature. as though they are decided because the decision itself is what is galling. And I think that that's, I guess to also to, to go back to Oedipus and I know this is a little bit outside of the scope of your essay, but I think it dovetails well. I'm so curious about Paul is Paul after his, you know, leading the Fremen to the, the jihad throughout the world, et cetera, before he, what is it? He becomes the preacher or whatever. Isn't yeah. isn't he kind of an, the Oedipus figure after sort of blinding yeah, he does himself? Blind, yeah, he kind of he doesn't necessarily blind himself per se, but he does go blind. Yeah, right. He becomes the preacher and starts to rail against his own kizzurit or whatever the sort of priestly caste that rule the basically rule the Imperium, I guess, through Alia. I guess what I'm curious about is the preacher, if we're talking about the dialectics of Dune, is sure. is Paul sort of after his ascendancy, after his blindness, he gets a sort of insight into how he had become a kind of religious figure, right? Oh, well, is, he is, really laments this through the course of the second book. I mean, I think that is the whole sort of denouement of Dune Messiah really goes through his struggle of sort of it's really prescience end up trapping him into where he's there's no decision, for example, in which that he can make in which Chani doesn't die because right. of the decisions that have already been made. And this goes to, you know, prescience and dogmatic images of thought that I won't really get into. But I just want to no, that's, raise, that's those little, raise those little flags for people in the audience. I guess I was I was wondering how the Paul, all of the things he says in the second book kind of foreshadows what we get with Leto. There is a kind of two sides of the same coin, if you will, right? Are we supposed to read Leto II in his 3,500-year reign as kind of, in the end, as you said, James, where he's he wants to be remembered as a tyrant, is that sounds a little bit kind of like what Paul was trying to tell the, the Fremen about, but maybe, maybe telling isn't the same thing as actually showing right. and doing. I guess Paul has that sort of, uh, he has a more human ambivalence yeah. about the whole thing. Leto recognizes that there is a kind of a contradiction between what he has to be and how he needs to be remembered in order to, in order for the way he is to be somehow, you know, worthwhile for his whole project to be worthwhile. But he doesn't seem to struggle with it in the way that Paul does. Even quite early on, I think in the first book, perhaps in in yeah, the, the first book in the series, Paul, when he first starts to get his, his visions of the future, you know, yeah. he can see the, the jihad, he can mm-hmm. anticipate this jihad. He's immediately appalled by it, isn't he? He has that, that sort of horrifying yes. vision of this whole, of this whole uh, dark future. Right. Everything yeah, is yeah. predicated to, I think the timeline is basically there was a, a choke point whenever he meets the Fremen and fights Jameis. At that point, the only way to stop the jihad was for him to be killed. Otherwise, if he continued on his path, and became the leader of the Fremen, killed Jameis, etc., then he was going to be locked into the path, the future of the Jihad. And then it's about navigating that in the least bad way, which I think perhaps, (laughs) I mean, it goes to a very conservative notion of politics, I think, or maybe Mm -hmm. I'm just being naive about the, you know, the burdens of ruling, for example, you know, 
Well, it's kind of Churchill's maxim about, you know, I mean, this is where utilitarian ethics, I think, really come into play because it's like, how does one weigh the price of humanity? Maybe humanity does need to die out. All things need an end, perhaps, you know, this this push towards immortality Mm. that I think is part of this vitalism of Herbert, maybe that like animates the golden path at the, you know, whether he comes out and explicitly states it or not is, I don't know. It's, you know, this is where anthropocentrism maybe Mm -hmm. could be brought in, but I don't know necessarily want to go to that just to flag that. Well, as you say, sort of utilitarianism and consequentialist ethics in general uh, Mm -hmm. is custom made for talking about least bad options rather than the correct options. And when you, uh, you started to venture down a path, sort of a Churchillian path there. Is, is this in reference to the, the idea of democracy as yes. not necessarily the best form of government, but just the uh, yeah. the best one we, we've got so far, or you know, right. the least bad one we've come up with, mm-hmm. uh, we've come up with? Sure. And you can understand that, right? From the point of view of a political leader, talking about the correct course of action to follow, as opposed to the just the least bad option or the best of a bad set of options that we have available to us, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do because you are always having to contend with a whole variety of different interests mm-hmm. that will sometimes be just pulling in different directions. Right. And this is something that, again, I think Lito especially in, in the Dune series illustrates very, very vividly, or he embodies right. that in a, in a very yeah. clear way. He understands that and knows how to use that to his advantage. I think by, you know, obviously he has, he has a certain privilege in the sense of being able to have access to all of human history, as well as his particular, you know, vision of the golden path. Yeah. But he isn't just having to think ahead to the next election. Right. 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 right, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. He's the, he even refers to himself, I think, as the first truly long-term planner in human history. That makes sense. And it is interesting too, James, in your essay, and something that maybe I it's hard to keep front and center when reading the Dune lore because there's so much. But the idea that that Leto's reasoning can be thought of in terms of securing a future in which humanity survives or or per- perhaps thrives. That being one of the central goals, I think that goes to what Coop's talking about with anthropocentrism and vitalism, but at least it makes clear to me sort of why some of the things Leto does are, are obviously on the face of it, you know, oppressive, disgusting, in, in a certain sense, you know, morally reprehensible from yeah. an individual sense. But as you right. said, with the consequentialism, with the end in, in sight as securing a future for humanity... I think that that's where it becomes interesting and perhaps, you know, perhaps maybe that's also the the flip side that maybe Herbert wasn't trying to say, but it through the dialectics of Dune. Well, maybe like, I mean, you're right. Maybe maybe there is a kind of embedded, like it's maybe humanity doesn't need to, you know, survive. Maybe, maybe, maybe maybe Stalin is a better metaphor for Leto than anybody just because of the whole idea of the, the dictatorship of the proletariat is to oppress the bourgeoisie, the bourgeois class, right? So that is effectively what Leto is doing by attacking not only, you know, the Ixians with, he motivates them to seek out the technologies to render the spice useless. He, which right. also takes down the guild's importance, their source of power within the Imperium, right? He wrests away the breeding program from the Bene Gesserit and brings it under his direct control. So he is Mm -hmm. really 
basically taking out all of the sort of we'll use this in scare quotes, but sort of these bourgeois institutions in his revolution, so to speak, right. or his sort of dictatorship. And that's a good point, because it is a shifting of power from these disparate kind of shadow organizations that are controlling so much of interstellar trade and, and power and, and centralizing it in order to perhaps disperse it again with his death. But it reminds me of the way that uh, people or some philosophers characterize the, if you like, the, the fascist reinterpretation of Hegel in the 20th century, that they sometimes thought that what, for example, Gentile's you know, refashioning of the idea of the, of the state entailed was the stripping away of civil society as an independent or, or a mm. largely independent a sort of sphere of ethical life or an element of, of the ethical state, let's say. And instead, instead of having a, a sort of a triad with the family and civil society and the state, instead you just have the state swallow everything else, every mm. other part of life. Or you might think of them as being somehow stacked on top of one another. Some mm. of the strange things about uh, Hegelian language, I guess, is that uh, there's a lot of spatial metaphors in there, aren't there? There's right. things are often being uh, placed next to each other or climbing over one another or undermining one another. It does make yeah. sense that a right-wing reading of Hegel would privilege some of his statements, like in the philosophy of right, where you know, the state is kind of the culminating point, if you will. It sometimes can take on the appearance of the the absolute. And so in that sense, that paves the path for, obviously, you know, a kind of totalitarian reading. Yeah. I mean, Leto, too, is what is he but universal spirit? I mean, kind of literally because of all the memories that he has access to. Right, Not only okay. that, but his ability to see in the future. I mean, Paul has this, too. This is maybe an interesting thing we could spend a little bit of gas on would be, you know, Paul has, he's trained as a mentat. He's trained martially, not only in weaponry by Gurney Halleck, but by his mother through the Prana Bindu training of the Bene Gesserit. So he has like, every, if he was like in your RPG or whatever, you're doing your min max, like he's yeah. got all the fucking characteristics are like, right. he's primed for this role yeah. in a sense. He's on New like, Game Plus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. And I think that I like the way you brought out, James, that what's different from Leto for many reasons, perhaps, but the ambivalence in Paul. And I think this is why reading Messiah is such a shock from going to Dune. You think you're getting a kind of hero story about Paul, right. and then Messiah flips that on its head. Again, yeah, it's gloomy, not, not, isn't it? The, yeah. The yeah. Is, it's really different. The ambivalence of, you know, well, hey, this is act actually Paul is an anti-hero, right? I think that's perhaps what leads to books two and three leading to a little bit more introspective philosophical material rather than just being this kind of romance saga of a hero. There is. I think he intended that to begin with. Like, I think Dune was supposed to have that message, but it was too subtle. Yes. And then I think this is why the, everyone talks about the first book and nobody talks about this series is because, honestly, the first book is the most polished and well-written, but right. I don't think it's necessarily the one with the most exciting ideas within it. But right, yeah. But Messiah is that. I think Messiah is the like barrier to get people to move past that because it's such a reversal of the kind of heroic myth that people mm -hmm. latch onto within. And I think especially, I don't think the Lynch movie did a lot of favors to that reading of the first book either because of the way that it does kind of lean towards this messianic figure of Paul. And like, it doesn't really acknowledge his 
his sort of materiality. It's like he's this transcendent. He is a he's treated more like a god. Like it rains at the end of the Lynch movie. I mean, that's that's yeah, totally uh, beyond Hilbert the pale that, of what says Herbert exactly did. that, doesn't he? When complaining about the film, he says, "Well, Paul was not a god who could make it rain. Right. Uh, <laughs> rather, he he was someone who, in fact, I may have it here." Yes, he says, I have my quibbles about the about the film, of course. Paul was a man playing God, not a God who could make it rain. Mm. June was aimed at this whole idea of the infallible leader because my view of history says mistakes made by a leader or made in a leader's name are amplified by the numbers who follow without question. He really sort of spells it out there. Is that quote from Lynch or from Herbert? No, that's Herbert. That is, that, that's Herbert, yeah. Sure. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. In the context of the Lynch film. Right, right. Yeah. That was a comment on the on the Lynch film uh, from I think the mid eight yeah the mid eighties so it's yeah. about eighty five I think and that makes sense because I think that you're right I mean Dune Messiah is a is a completely different narrative it's not I mean obviously it has a different style which I'm not going to complain about but I think that that style was needed to sort of look back on Dune and, and question the perhaps again as as Coop said maybe the message was too subtle but. This notion that Paul was some sort of hero that saved the day, was a messiah in a good sense and not in some sort of conflicted sense. Perhaps that was the only way to move forward with the series because otherwise it's kind of like moving forward from, uh, I'm thinking about- Yeah, there's no narrative tension if Superman is Superman, yeah. right? Like if, there's, think, no about, cha- yeah. if there's no change, it's very static and boring. So yeah. I think about yeah. like the, the Rambo movies, right? <laughs> the first movie is good and then the rest are just hero <laughs> masturbatory stuff. So it's obvious that you could have written more hero worship in the following dunes, but then it wouldn't be so it wouldn't be as interesting. Which the Atreides just go from one planet to another and sorting out problems. Right. Clapping their hands at the end each time and saying, well, that's the end of that chapter. Yeah, mo- monster yeah. of the week stuff, right? <laughs> that would be that that would basically be it. Exactly. I read that Gentile has a sort of, so he's considered like a radical eminentist. This is a big feature of uh, Gentile's philosophy. He wrote an essay called The Method of Imminence in uh, 1912, thereabouts. I translated that with, I was a co-translator on that, I should say, a few years ago. This is in some ways the real centerpiece of Gentile's philosophy. Gentile was about 47 uh, when the, the fascists came to power, and he was already pretty well established as a as a major figure in Italian philosophy, alongside Benedetto Croce. They were in some ways a kind of a pair, regarded as a pair. And of course, Croce would later be regarded as, in some ways, the uh, the figurehead of the of the anti-fascist mm-hmm. movement in Italy. But uh, Gentile's philosophical system was what he called uh, actual idealism or actualism, which was characterized by a commitment to the idea of a method of imminence. Mm. So he thought that every philosopher prior to him had in some ways mistakenly or wrongly conceded the existence of some kind of transcendent plane. And he wanted to do away with any kind of dualism. So he was interested in trying to make sense of the idea that reality is, how would he put this? It is thought that thinks itself. It is literally thought thinking, which is a phrase that we see in some translations of Hegel, right? Yes. But he really wants to follow that through to its if you like, to its logical conclusion. And what he concludes is that, again, that reality is, it exists purely in the present. He's a thoroughgoing presentist. It, mm. is, it is an act of thinking in the present okay. moment that is perpetually constructing itself. And though we may talk about a thought that I had yesterday, or I may refer to a word that I can't quite think of at this moment, those, he says, are just abstractions. They're just constructions of our thought. 
And we might think that, well, this has got very little to do with politics, uh, James, or Giovanni for that matter. And you might be right. I think this is, this is one of the, the real hard questions for Gentile. He made such a, this was a big project for him. And he wrote most of his systematic work, almost all of his systematic work before the fascists came to power. Interesting. That he is remembered as the philosopher of fascism, you know, that the, <laughs> is in some ways kind of a problem for him. I mean, in some ways it was great for me because it meant that no one has really been has really wanted to touch Gentile unless they wanted to learn something about fascism. Right. So no one is really going to Gentile to try to find out, you know, really what he thought about ethics, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And again, kind of understandably, you might you might think, well, his ethics might have we might have some questions about his ethics. If those are the conclusions that he reached, then we can probably forget about the details. So it meant that there was a big gap in the literature, especially in the English language literature. And in the Italian literature, the story is a little bit different, I think, in that the, uh, I guess they just do the history of philosophy somewhat differently. He's been stuck with the name of, or the title of kind of a great man in Italian philosophy, of being a great Italian philosopher. About, what, 12 years ago now, I went to the uh, the Vittoriano in Rome. Would you know the building if you saw it? Sometimes it's called the Wedding Cake. Probably wouldn't, but yeah. I mean, who yeah, you can bring of, it up just to yeah. show well, us? <laughs> sure. Well, it's it's this this big kind of grand building. It's where you'll find the, I guess, the tomb of the unknown soldier for Italy. And opinions vary on whether this is a great piece of architecture or a, or a, an unpleasant reminder of the fascist era. Interesting. Okay. But when you went in the in the front of this building at that time, there was a big display for Benedetto Croce, who you know, worked closely alongside Gentile for much of the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And if you went into the, deeper into the building, they had this display with an oil painting of Gentile in it. And it, I think that that kind of represents, in some ways, his, right. his place in the, the canon of Italian philosophers in some way. I mean, he, he's quite an awkward figure because obviously he was a fascist. He was still a, a sort of a formidable philosopher in his own right. And the, what that means for his place in the in the history of philosophy is not a question, I think, with a clear answer. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, I kind of think that, you know, if Heidegger is, is considered even by someone like Badu to be the last recognizable great philosopher, there's enough awkwardness to spread around in the history of philosophy when we look back cool. at the quote unquote great men and women and, and their and the sort of the political thoughts they had at the time. I mean, that's that's his own thing. But it is interesting, this notion of thought thinking itself, because, you know, just really quickly, Coop, since you brought up Laura Well, I think that for Laura Well, the real for him is something that is what he, he, he says, it's foreclosed to thought, right? That thought never can't access the real. And it's been the dream of philosophy since its inception to sort of, put forward these systems whereby sort of thought co-determines the real, whether it be through language or some sort of mechanism. And, you know, for him, thought is sort of forced by the real. This is kind of Larwell's Deleuzian moment where thought doesn't think the real, but the real gives rise to thought in its foreclosure. And for Deleuze, you know, we're always forced to think through some sort of encounter, through some sort of uh, problem. Shock, a problem, exactly. Uh, and I think that that's, I mean, maybe that, that can wrap back around to, yeah. to Dune because- yeah. I mean, the pragmatics know. of like Pierce, for example, I think very well are definitely there in the story. The Bene Gesserit are probably like the biggest exemplar of that philosophy or like you could work through, but I didn't want to interrupt uh, you. I just wanted to- No, 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 you're good. I, I was just thinking about how, I think that perhaps when we talked about, we were 
few moments ago, we were talking about what this is kind of how the, the first installment of the Villeneuve Dune ends, which is what Cooper was talking about earlier, where the only way to avert the jihad, yeah, the jihad is for Paul to die in the duel. And we see that what Paul almost like doesn't want to kill the guy. What was his name again? He doesn't want to kill Jameis. He yeah. doesn't want to kill Jameis, but it's it's almost too easy for him. And would you know, it's uh, the fight at least. At least in the book, it seems. Maybe in the in the movie, it's not depicted that way. But at the end of the movie, we do see that that vision that kind of pretends right. the second installment. Uh, yeah. His vision of of the war and and the jihad. And I'm I'm thinking about how that perhaps that's part of the beginning of the ambivalence. Is this you know this access to to the future there is right. it is kind of a shock to to thinking and what one what one has to do with all of that that foresight or um you know that perhaps that sets him on a on his own path of reflection it's very difficult to imagine what it would be for to talk about if you like the rationality of something that lived forever or something that could predict the future with pretty unerring certainty or the idea that, for example, maybe if the best results for humanity as a whole would result from me dying maybe now. It's very difficult to make sense of that, just because, I guess because we're the sorts of creatures that we are, right? We're not, we're not really equipped to look upon our problems from that sort of abstracted point of view. And that's yeah. one of the things that I was talking about a little in the chapter, I think, is the, the mm-hmm. idea of, the, if you like, the point of view of morality, the moral standpoint, and the ways that we can try to capture that in various different ways. And moral philosophers have tried to capture that in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes they'll talk about the impartial spectator, or they'll talk about procedures like working through the, I guess, the categorical imperative, mm-hmm. or different ways of understanding the categorical imperative. Or the idea that you're, you're ultimately asking what God would want you to do. The idea that God isn't just like an ordinary person. God is not totally indifferent, perhaps, but God has a, he doesn't have the same kind of stake in the outcomes that any ordinary person would do. There is the root of a whole lot of the philosophy of religion, I guess. It's about, you know, why anything would really matter to God if God knows everything and can do everything and all the rest. This has always struck me reading the book of Job, which for (laughs) me kind of stands out from the the rest of the sort of biblical narrative about this standpoint of God and the moral order of the universe. Because for, at least in my reading of Job, and I'm not a biblical scholar, but you know, Job is singular because it has a kind of, it refutes a simplistic stance whereby we believe in a kind of karmic destiny or moral order of the universe, a kind of a harmoniously, you know, predetermined world wherein good things come to good people, etc. I know you see some of this in like Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most morbid books, but in Job, it's very clear that there's no reasoning, there's no principle behind the causality in the world. And I think that part of that is what's perhaps frustrating is obviously there is a sense in which, you know, religion, morality, these things, we look at a world that's potentially imperfect, even if Leibniz calls it the best of all possible worlds, but maybe we can think about it as to talk about what we, we did earlier with, with Churchill. It's the, it's the least bad of all possible worlds, <laughs> potentially, right? You know, it's, and so in that sense, trying to like, find fault in God, which is eventually what Job is led to do, which leads God to say that, did you, you don't, you don't know me, right? You, you, <laughs> you didn't create the stars in the sky, the Leviathan in the, in the waters to bring up that, <laughs> that term. What's interesting though, is 
Job is fighting back against all of the collective wisdom that's telling him, hey, your bad things are happening to you because you did something wrong. And he's like, no. And I think that that's, you know, your point about in your essay, you know, there is a sense in which it's definitely hard for us to be put in Paul's shoes where we, we may have that moment of reflection that, hey, you know, if I sacrifice myself here, that could be the best for the future without necessarily having any certainty, right? And we have that self-preservative drive whereby we're going to want to rule out that thought. And, you know, perhaps his Messiah point would have come before his greatness, right? You know, it would have come at the beginning of the art, as we were saying, right? That it's only with his sacrifice there, which obviously wouldn't lead for a great hero story, but perhaps would... You know, I think that that vibe, I feel like that's more pronounced in the books to come, maybe not in the first book, but in the books to come, there is this maybe nostalgia or this mourning of of the path not taken, which may have been the right one. I wonder if in, in the chapter, I mean, if, if I'd had twice the word count to, to <laughs> fill, or uh, if I were writing about this again, I think the, the figure of Paul is really worth uh, worth exploring. I think I probably presented him as just the uh, the warm up act mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. on before before Lita the second. Yeah, this is where uh, I was kind of perhaps saying the Catachon yeah. might be, but please, finish. yeah, sure. But uh, I think it raises a different set of questions. Just looking on the the choices that Paul has to make from his much more limited point of view. If you say that you know if if you can make decisions today that you can reasonably guess, but you can't be sure yeah. are going to bear fruit. They're valuable fruit, say, 200 years from now. And none of the decisions that you make is going to result in you living another 200 years. It's very difficult to reconcile yourself with that, right? It's very difficult. If you say that, well, your life is going to go very badly for, well, until you die, really, you're going to see some really bad results for the rest of your life. But right. I promise that 200 years from now, everything will be, will be brilliant. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to take that seriously, I guess, just again, because we are the kinds of creatures that we are. Yeah, so, so the, there's an awful lot to dig into there with, with Paul, especially. It's, uh, it's a remarkably rich series in some ways, I think. Oh, it's, it's so the, rich, it's, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's so much that you can do with it. And I, I don't mean to, to say that all of these are thoughts that Frank Herbert himself has necessarily right. had. It's, you know, the, the, the idea is not to say that he has a sort of a secret philosophy for us that he wants us to, uh, to seize onto. I didn't mention this earlier, I think, but I was thinking uh, before we started speaking today about the format or the, is that the right word? In what form I first came across Dune. And I don't know what it was. I think I probably saw the Lynch film on VHS in the 90s. Okay. I think that's probably it. And <laughs> was bewildered, but, you know, it led me to read the book a little bit later on. And at some point I'll have seen the, well, I guess what is over here, the Mega Drive, the, the you know, the Sega Genesis. There was the the... Real time. There was a strategy game, right? Just be, yeah, yeah, the, 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 yeah. The strategy video game, and then there was another one in the late nineties, with June two thousand. In some of these formats, I'll have, I'll have sort of come across it at different times, and then there was the the TV version a bit later on that was it had its strengths and weaknesses, let's say. But one thing that I think is really impressive about the whole the whole package for any reservations we might have about you know the sight of uh, Lynch's Baron Harkonnen sort of swinging <laughs> about like a like Peter Pan after there's been a, a malfunction in the rigging or, uh, you know, we might have reservations about, you know, the presentation of, you know, maybe about the expository, the expository dialogue where, you know, 
again, I keep coming back to Baron Harkonnen, but, you know, when he sort of introduces himself by name to members of his own family in one of the early <laughs> scenes before he lays out his schemes. It's such a, it's such a recognisable world, such a recognisable setting. You sort of have a sense of the place and the ideas and the factions in it, in a sense, independently of any of the specific forms that it's taken. You don't have to worry about the things you might not have liked about one version or that you might have preferred in one version to another. You still have quite a clear sense of what Dune is all about. This is, I think, what makes it such a, again, such a rich source, why it's so worth thinking about. You know, I think that maybe something about Herbert's writing in general, because of his journalistic background, sort of allows he sets a minimal setting but he leaves so much space for the reader to fill in and i think maybe that is the strength and plus with the ideas that he injects you know i I think the philosophy that he does draw from in his own syncretic way that like you said i don't know that he's necessarily putting forth this grand philosophical vision per se but like his it's coming through just unconsciously perhaps in the writing too but like those two just work well together really gets yeah, he, it's, there's he, space he has, for the imagination he has ideas for sure doesn't he he's you know he's done a lot of reading but he's just he's sort of picking he's picking up threads as they occur to him precisely um, some of the things he he wrote uh, again about june you know he talks about machiavelli and 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 malthus and hobbes of course comes up i could say the malthus that, that was all i was going to say i i didn't want to interrupt you Malthus and Dune, I think, again, would be a great topic to write something about or to have a chat about at some stage. I'm going to be teaching some Malthus this coming term, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. It's such a, it's so sort of provocative still, 200 years later. I assume that that, you know, there would be a Malthusian impetus for Paul's wanting to transform and terraform Dune to sort of boost the, the livable conditions of the world. But that saga itself gets wrapped up, I think, with Leto, right? The terraforming itself yeah. becomes kind of central in the in the narrative arc. Am I kind of reading that correctly? That that Malthusian impulse of just making a better world, right? This uh, bringing water, if you will, to this world that's sort of been under these harsh conditions. Maybe it is a manifestation of like this paradise, this like, even to, I think, drawing on Christian myth, like the mm. sort of Christ reign on earth and for like a thousand years or something like that is probably heavily infusing like this vision of Arrakis as a paradise. But I think what's interesting, well, I don't know if I, that gets into the ecological like theories behind it. But, you know, we discovered that the sandworms, the sand trout are responsible for the original terraforming of Arrakis mm-hmm. itself. But I don't know if that bears relevance on the conversation necessarily. I mean, it's just the ecological I think that, and James, you could speak more on this since you're going to be teaching Malthus in, in the future. But but yeah, that that ecological background to the novel itself as being one of the central figures beyond the characters, perhaps is that kernel of, you know, the conditions of possibility for humanity to, to thrive. I mean, if that's one of Leto's goals in his in his super moral oppressive reign mm-hmm. is to ensure humanity's survival and thriving i mean i think that that has a at least a little bit to do with with sort of what malthus was thinking through and before give it to you james one of the things that i think about is there's a short little essay on like farming and fertility uh, that emerson writes in the 1800s and he basically takes up malthus's points and i'm sure he wasn't the first to say it but he's his basic idea is that malthus forgets the ramping up of the means of production that technology allows. Anyway, that's just 
Yeah, well, I guess that it's with, I guess environmental ethics is exactly one of those topics that brings the kind of problems that we see illustrated so, again, so vividly in Dune to life. Mm -hmm. Because it is exactly the sort of problem that we would need to take action on now. We need several generations of people to be taking actions on. They'd need to sort of limit what they're, they'd need to take what might look to them like the least or less than ideally desirable options, might rephrase that. You know, they'd need to take at least second best options and accept those in order to ensure that they don't end up with some, with a world that we can't live in in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. Again, it's difficult to persuade people that that's something that they have reason to do here and now, because again, they're people who are going to live well, they're not going to live long enough to see the full effects of these things play out. Right, and right. It's very difficult to make people think in terms of generations or centuries. If mm-hmm. you say, well, you know, you're going to be dead quite early in this story with the best right. will in the world, with the best health care in the world, mm-hmm. you're not going to see the end of this story. And this is a problem that we can see with Malthus. I mean, you, you can think of... Uh, the problem that Malthus is presenting us in terms of, you know, a graph with kind of two lines on it, and it's you know, one line representing, I guess, how much food we need in order to support a growing population, the other of how much food we can produce. And of course, it was shown not long ago, we, in the 19th century, it was shown that we were better able to increase the amount of food production, to increase the rate of food production, to keep pace better with the growth in, in the population size. But at some point, those lines are still going to converge, right? It just means that you're just kicking the problem into the long grass. That's a good point. You haven't solved the problem. You still need at some point to make a decision about what you're going to do where the population gets high enough and people live long enough that you're not going to be able to feed them without destroying the ecosystem or or, or making the world sort of unlivable or turning the world into a factory farm. It's one of the the issues, again, that I think is it sort of emerges from behind the the science fiction, I guess, of, of June. I think that's where the Pierce comes in, in terms of the problematics for like Deleuze is we be, we can't predict how we'll respond to a given problematic that is undetermined. And there is a potential that we could perhaps develop a technology or an innovation once it becomes necessary, obviously. And that goes to, I think, the impetus, the sort of almost absurd levels that Herbert goes to. I mean, I'm thinking of the most absurd scene within God Emperor of Dune, perhaps, would be the one where... It's Siona Atreides. I think this is even the opening, one of the opening chapters of the book is she's infiltrating Leto's citadel to steal some materials. I want to say it's journals or something like that. Leto has placed a bunch of uh, D-wolves <laughs> in his for his hidden forest, basically to keep people from, tr- you know, keep people out effectively. And he's watching on a screen Siona being chased by one of these wolves. And he's like, he's getting aroused by just the the genetic pressure is like gonna her wild genes like it's that's how like absurd it gets but i think it goes to the same like the logic is the same in a certain way (laughs) god created arrakis to train the faithful the sardaukar as well like that was the hidden truth of the sardaukar was that the conditions of seleucus secundus necessitated the problematics of that environmental milieu created this warrior class that was you know second to none in the imperium although we see that the fremen trump that because arrakis is even a harder environment it's like the those variables playing on the genes with intensity that's what he wants that intensity so that there's always this genetic pressure in place because when that gets taken off then humanity sort of ossifies and hardens and there's no change there's no dynamism 
mm-hmm. two things, right? And that maybe is the lesson of, of Leto's reign is like, you know, we sort of idealize this fantasy of the the god, emperor, the sovereign, etc., god on earth. But whenever it's actualized, it's a horror. You know what I mean? Mm. We're yeah, we're terrified, or you know, it becomes this notion or this like deeply ingrained, and like I said earlier, unconscious revulsion towards the charismatic one. I guess it's like the uh, like I said in the essay, if you bring the god emperor of Dune to, well, yeah, you bring the god emperor to life, you then have to contend with the fact that from the point of view of something that you know lives to all intents and purposes forever and has, I mean, not quite omniscience, but, you know, it's, it's, it has... It's pretty close, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it has a, a hugely privileged point of view, standpoint. Mm-hmm. You have to contend with the fact that none of us is ever really going to count for very much compared in the grand scheme of things. Most of us are just kind of incidental characters in reality as that person, as such a figure would see it, which in some ways doesn't jive well with our, our sort of ordinary ethical intuitions, right? How everyone is worth is worth something. I mean, you brought up Kant earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. People as ends in themselves, sure. I was just thinking along with you that that's an inversion of thinking of other individuals also and primarily as ends in themselves and not just as means. There's a there's an inversion of that kind of moral imperative with when we get to that God-like standpoint. It's hard to imagine what it would mean for people to be ends in themselves for someone with that sort of view of reality, someone who could live forever. To bring up Nietzsche, since you you had a similar origin story as I did with Nietzsche at 16, reading Beyond Good and Evil, it seems like you have a, a Dune origin story similar to, to Coop watching uh, Lynch's Dune on, on VHS in the 90s. <laughs> but I was thinking about Nietzsche reflects on Kant, and he says it in one of the books where nature doesn't care about individuals. Nature cares about, in today's parlance, we might say like ecosystems or populations and ecosystems, but that's basically kind of how he puts it in a kind of Darwinian sense that nature cares about populations. Right. And maybe cares isn't the right word, I'm paraphrasing. But I think that that's perhaps the standpoint of Leto, if we can think of Leto as quote unquote nature, even a contrived one, it's it's the, the pressures he's putting on the populace or the populations, it's not caring about individuals, right? It, yeah. It's the units I, that matter need not be individuals. Yeah. I read it as very Hegelian in the sense that history is a slaughter bench one way Ooh. or another. Toledo, I think I think he just is a pragmatist in that sense, or like that's where the pragmatism plays a plays a role, perhaps. Though I've not read too much pragmatism. So it's definitely makes sense in at least like a, an everyday sense, that kind of hardcore pragmatism yeah. that he has the ideals that we think of when we think about the individual and moral philosophy that goes out of the, the window. And but I was going to say, too, if ecology was kind of a burgeoning science, even if there have been ecological ideas for centuries, but it becoming its own science in its own right around the time when Herbert's writing this book, we could say the same about genetics, just to go back to a little bit of what Coop was talking about. Yeah, what was it, 53 or 58 is when Watson and Crick discovered DNA? Right. I'm just thinking about how that that would have been kind of more or less cutting edge, if you will, just this notion of a, I guess Herbert could have used other terms, you know, essence or blood or some other thing, but to, you know, to use the the gene, if if on one end, a main character that's not a character is like the ecology of Arrakis and how much it 
inspires the whole story, like with the spice trade, etc. There is there is another character that is kind of the genetics, which gets us back to the Bene Gesserits, who I don't know what for thousands of years or hundreds of years had been thousands kind of, and thousands thousands had been priming this golden path, you know, planting these seeds for beliefs in in some sort of messiah figure. And I think that this is one thing that you guys maybe can help me with. It's Jessica, Jessica kind of her love for Leto the first, if I'm reading this right, or her arrogance leads her to I think it's both to, to, right, leads her to sort of give birth to the what the Quizots Hadarak before the Bene Gesserits wanted. And this is what gets us to Leto, that Leto is not necessarily Paul and Leto aren't the plan that the Bene Gesserits had. What they had in mind was for Jessica to bear a daughter to Leto and then the daughter. Marry the emperor? Would No, no, no. Would marry oh, or would, Baron. would breed with Fade Rautha. Okay. And that would be the Quitsats Adorat. Gotcha. So that was the plan. And obviously that goes to shit, obviously. But it's interesting now that you mentioned this because I was spent so much time talking about how much of a pragmatist the Bene Gesserit are. One interesting aspect of the story following God Emperor and the subsequent books, so Heretics and Chapter House, is that the Bene Gesserit sort of re they sort of reconstitute their own power. They become one of the major power brokers within the their sort of reconstituted imperium following the scattering. And again, I forget this is like three thousand fifteen no fifteen hundred years following the events of God Emperor. But they still have this very pragmatic, all in the direction of duty and pragmatism and self-sacrifice and self-discipline. And I mean, those are aspects that I think inhabit these characters just period. That's one of the more Nietzschean aspects of the books that these people are really like, we don't get the everyday sort of point of view here. We're talking the like, the sort of arist- yeah, exactly, exactly. All of these people, like Paul, like I said, trained in martial arts, trained not only whatever fighting styles there are, but also the Pranabindu, like I said, the Mentat training. So these are people that are at the upper echelons of complete and total self-discipline. That sort of begins to change. Sort of at the end of the series, they start to realize the Bene Gesserit that we need to reincorporate emotion and love into this. It's kind of interesting there. Many thousands of years down the line, they think, hang on a second. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the aspects of the self-discipline, too, is in the in one of the opening scenes of the book and in the movie, obviously, with the the testing that Paul has to undergo. Yeah, I mean, that goes to the the whole box. This goes to the genetic. This goes to the whole genetic, like vitalist move of two is like, oh, you're an animal. (laughs) Do you want to realize your satisfaction immediately or are you capable of? having the self-discipline to restrain yourself from the easiest access to pleasure. It's very Nietzschean in a certain sense where it's, you know, what distinguishes the human from the animal, which is kind of how the book puts it, right? Like, are you just an animal or are you (laughs) something higher where it's, you don't have to immediately react to every action as though you're a physical object in a Newtonian world. You, you can, you can sort of build a, a memory and blah 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 again not to bring in Nietzsche too much but you know you can react to a stimulus in other ways than merely in a natural cause cause yeah in a reflex way yeah you can kind of imagine the uh Paul being ushered into the room to undergo that procedure and just being told well this is a 
this is going to be quite a, a big symbol <laughs> for the rest of the series. So take she's going series. to test you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Is it a multiple yeah. choice? Or are we yeah, short? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I know that we've had you for about two hours. Do we want to maybe do one more topic yeah. and we can lead out? I, uh, yeah, I wanted to maybe flesh out a little bit of the discussion of Paul, because I think there's a lot of interesting things that we can dive into, I think, relative to figures from the Bible. One of those I mentioned moments ago was the Kadishan. This is another angle where we could even go back and tie it back to this kind of like Freudian thing. And the sovereign exception is to think about like Moses, um, because I think Paul has some interesting ties to or parallels with Moses. And to contextualize this for you too, James, Freud has the book Moses and Monotheism. His basic argument is that Moses was this Egyptian priest during the reign of Akhenaten. He has to flee Egypt. He runs into tribes and he still has the sort of the monotheism of Akhenaten that he perpetuates. The tribe sort of, they kill him, they kill Moses, and then they feel this tremendous guilt over his death. So they begin, they honor him by picking up his monotheistic religion. And that's sort of a very slapdash, succinct way to, to wrap that up. But just to give you a little bit of context for where I'm going would be that because this also involves the sovereign exception in the way because it's an exclusion. I don't know. I might need your help here, Taylor, to kind of suture that. To get, do you know what I'm saying? Where like the primal, because the primal father I hear plays a role as well with being sort of the exception. Because you could say Leto or Paul perhaps could be this sovereign, right? They're the sovereign exception. They're the kind of primal father that has, that is the whole, the one. In my understanding, you're you're kind of priming us to the move from Paul and his and then his absence is wandering, and then you know Paul gets kind of deified, right? right? He gets he's the he's the out, he's the outsider, so to speak. Obviously, he doesn't quite get killed, but it's not a perfect one to one. But I think there's some interesting connections to Moses, but also the sovereign exception, and like also you know getting into Lacan and the sexuation diagram a little bit is that kind of you know what I mean. But Paul and Paul's downfall, in a certain sense, primes the Fremen to accept someone like Leto II. The yeah, God so Emperor. that would that would be where the Kadashan, I think, would most strongly, like that's the connection perhaps there. And you're talking about the Katakon as in the, the Schmidian idea? Yeah, or even just the theological concept of, you know, this figure that forestalls the apocalypse. Gotcha. But I guess this is sort of an inversion because Leto doesn't really... In a sense, he kind of like in a way he is carrying out a type of apocalypse, but not <laughs> under his tyranny, I suppose, if you would consider that an apocalyptic milieu to exist under, perhaps from a certain perspective. If Paul primes them for accepting, it's not Paul that's priming them, right? I mean, they've already been primed to kind of. Yeah, I suppose by the mission era or whatever, they've already they've been set up to accept the sort of phallic leader Mm-hmm. The sort of fellow yeah. logocentristic undergirding logic or whatever behind it all. The forestalling of the apocalypse, as kind of James points it out, as I mentioned earlier in the in your essay, James, is this hardcore, this oppressiveness comes with this long-sighted goal of sort of ensuring the best outcomes for for not only the Fremen, but for all of humanity, correct? Is this the overarching idea behind Leto's tyranny, if we want to call it that? Yeah, and I guess that this is one of the reasons why it needs to become 
if you like, a political religion, is that there needs to be a great investment of faith in that. As I said in the in the essay, people need to believe that they're, well, so far as they have any beliefs about it at all, they need to think that they're being oppressed for a good cause. Because again, in, in the short term, it's always going to look like bad news if someone right. is, is oppressing you. If you want to do one thing and someone is preventing you from doing it, that, that will look like a bad thing. That's where Duncan Idaho's perspective maybe. Well, I was just going to say that briefly, just that that's where Duncan Idaho's perspective, I think, is supposed to be like, obviously, in narrative contrast to Leto, right? That's kind of, I think, the idea is Duncan is supposed to be sort of this audience or reader surrogate to realize, sure, this golden path is great, but what about, you know, what about the people? Like, this is this horror. This is really kind of like this apocalyptic hell, I think, from the perspective of someone like Idaho. And I guess you, you you need that in order to make it a in order to make it a story that's it kind of makes sense that, that that people can engage with I suppose because you know if you imagine a version of the Dune series that begins with Leto the Second and is in which everything is filtered through the the perspective of Leto the Second maybe the the post Sandworm hybrid hybridization Leto the Second it's hard to imagine how that would be I feel like a kind of comprehensible as a story you need the you need the alternative perspective. You you need to to see what that would look like to somebody who has a, you know, has the limitations of of a human being. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Even if they're like Duncan Idaho, that you know, it's quite an unusual kind of human being, and you know, questions about the the identity. Right. Uh, yeah. Duncan Idaho and personal identity. Uh, funnily enough. Raised I mean, he has a whole in the book. Yeah. He has such an interesting. I think there's such an interesting Nietzschean sort of eternal recurrence yeah. type Ooh. thing you could delve into with Duncan in particular there. His fate is really to become a sort of almost like another Quetzat Satarat in a kind of way, because. But he's supposed to eventually. He's supposed to kill Leto. Is that Leto's right within plan? within God Emperor? Yes, that's the way. There's been something like I can't remember fifty or sixty Duncans, and most of them have died trying to kill right. the God Emperor. Right. So that that's that's sort of baked into why he's resurrected. Yeah, over it's an and interesting over. reversion of. Uh, Oedipus too, right? Because kill the father, you know what I mean? But Leto, instead of Leto seeing the son as a threat, he wants, you know what I mean? Like he eventually wants wants to to sort of like he, he doesn't want to he, he doesn't want to hoard, it, but he wants to he wants to relinquish power to the multitude right. the multitude through this distributed humanity that doesn't fall into this same trap of prescience and totalitarian visions of the future, I think. Maybe like the dogmatic image of thought perhaps is the ultimate sort of antagonist for the series that he's trying to say, like these big meta narratives, if we want to get into leotard and post-structuralism would be, these are the traps for humanity. They will, there's like a two-edged sword to it or something. There's a dialectic. It's a nice way of sort of summing up the the themes of the series, really. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's one of the, if you like, it's one of the big, the big kind of narrative arcs of the series or the big, big lines of thought that runs throughout the whole thing. I think this is a, this is good. And yeah, I mean, like, I guess the last thing I would say about the the dogmatic image of thought, I like that you're, you're saying that, Coop, because it is taken almost like literally in the series where it's... Yeah, well, the, here's the thing, too, that I want to hammer home here, because this is even something I may want to write about someday, is like what happens is that seeing the future locks you into that future. The prescient being, so Paul and Leto, whenever they see the image of the future it locks the entirety of the universe into that particular history. Right, right. Gotcha. There are no, yeah. there's no way out. 
So Leto even has to- Self-fulfilling prophecy kind of shit, right? He has to restrain himself from looking like he doesn't look at his death because he doesn't want to know because then that might impact his response to it. He might restrain it or or ward it off. Exactly. Right. Not to mention, you know, another aspect of Leto that I just want to bring up. This is where I think something like a character like Dr. Manhattan within The Watchmen provides a good corrective here because it's like once your sort of milieu changes to that of- extra or superhuman, like, then that's going to impact your thinking, right? The ambivalence that Dr. Manhattan begins to, we see develop within him towards humanity kind of goes to the same thing. But I think he comes back around in the end to the sort of same kind of like creative vitalist impulse that Herbert really likes too. So I don't know. There's a lot of food <laughs> for thought. It's 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 good. I liked what you said about the self-fulfilling or what I call the self-fulfilling prophecy. And James, if you you want i'm going to let you have the last word about what you've written for today and also if you want to lead us out you could tell us maybe a little bit if you, you told us a little bit about what you're about to teach but maybe you could tell us about your your current research project or what you're working on for the near future yeah sure i'm hoping to park gentile for a little while it's always tempting to come back to someone like gentile because it's you know i've, I've ended up being the one of the big gentile specialists in mm-hmm. in english i guess but i would like to write something about Sidgwick, uh, who I mentioned earlier on, Henry Sidgwick. Mm-hmm. I'd like to write something about the idea of the state and nation and what you might think of as the tying in with a Dune title, I guess, but the idea of the kind of the children of Leviathan. You might think mm-hmm. of what it means for states to divide into new states. You know, mm-hmm. think about something like, you know, Scottish nationalism, for example, and how we can make sense of that in political theory. So this is one of the big projects I'd like to write something about in the not too distant future. To answer your first question second. I think one of the great things about the Dune series is that it does enable us to think about some of these ideas that come up in political philosophy and in ethics and in, in other branches of philosophy as well, in ways that the, let's say, the complications of the reality in which we live don't enable us to think about or don't enable us to look upon directly. So with Herbert's idea of the God Emperor of Dune, for example, I mean the, you know, the, the figure of the God Emperor as opposed to the, the novel. This really enables us to think about the idea of a privileged perspective, of a superhuman perspective, of the limitations of of our point of view as finite human beings. And often we will talk about these things in philosophy as metaphors. You know, we understand them as metaphors. Some of them will be quite familiar metaphors. The idea of the state, for example, as being in some ways godlike is a pretty familiar one, I think. But they're allowed to emerge in a real sort of tangible form in this kind of fiction. So I think it is worth returning to this kind of, this kind of fiction and really mining it for, for all the insight that it can offer us. It's been terrific to speak to you both today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. We hope that the, you know, all the kind of psychoanalytic jargon and, and whatnot was not too like abrasive. Hopefully we're able to, maybe that exemplifies why I, in particular me, I love to tie philosophy to narrative because it gives you, it almost gives you that kind of transcendent position in a sort of metatextual way. And this even would go towards like the end of where the, you know, Frank Herbert left off with Dune because we have the characters of Daniel and Marty that he sort of encounters, which, you know, it's been theorized. These are stand-ins for Herbert and his wife potentially, but they kind of are these even higher extra dimensional beings that are able to perceive these are the ultimate enemies that the god emperor wants to ward off. Their ability to perceive us through prescience was one of the aspects of the golden path was to 
literally develop this in the genes of humanity, this gene that would not be able to be perceived by this these prescient beings who would lock us into their specific vision of a future of humanity. So, yes. well, I, I don't think you you did too much uh, psychoanalysis. I thought I thought it was. I, I thought I thought we stayed on on task for the most part. And James, I, I do appreciate you. Yeah, coming thank you so much. Well. And being patient uh, with us as well. I'm not- I know that um, it's really nice when, because of how much Cooper likes Dune and and got <laughs> he's gotten me into it. It's really Try nice to. that we were able to get you on to to talk about the books themselves, but also tie it into your to your to your work and your research project. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge of Gentile because that opened up another chapter in the history of philosophy for myself and for Coop. It's fun to be able to, to talk about this stuff, get a little serious, but also get a little speculative. It's great. And it's been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed yourself, but I know that it's probably pretty late in the evening for you uh, where you are, if I may. I'm not exactly sure. Oh, it's 7.21. It's not okay. too bad. <laughs> right. too bad. We're going to let you uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. But again, thanks for coming on and, and talking to us. And uh, it's been our pleasure. It's been fantastic. Thank you both very much. I hope that you enjoyed the chapter. There's not that much of it. You know, it's three and a half thousand words and it talks about too many philosophers. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's like a, a series of snacks. So I hope it was food for thought. I really hope that you enjoyed it. We did very much. So thanks yeah. for sharing your work with us. And this will probably be coming out, what, next week, Coop? Next weekend, yeah. So we'll let you Ideally. know as soon as it's out and, you know, we'll tweet about it. So you'll see it. I never know what to say when the Dune stuff comes up. So the fact that I enjoyed it, I know that that means something. So yeah, that's great news. Well, my pleasure. Great to meet you both. And likewise, uh, all the likewise. best. Cheers. Bye now. And thanks to James Wakefield for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in block work orange.